Hello, and welcome to Well, I Know Now, the podcast in which I talk to people affected by dementia in all sorts of different ways. We chat about what they know now, what they wish they'd known earlier, and what their experience has taught them about dementia, about life, about anything and everything. I'm Pippa Kelly. My mum lived with vascular dementia for the last decade of her life. She's no longer with us. One of the main things that Mum's Dementia taught me and my family was just how little we knew about it. Now, through my work as a dementia blogger and campaigner, I know so much more about this incurable condition. Not least that the smallest things can make a huge difference to those with dementia and their families and carers. My guest today is a professor. He's a highly respected clinician and academic with an impressive alphabet soup of letters after his name whose distinguished career focusing on older people's mental health and dementia has seen him take responsibility for national and international strategy and policy development. He's a leader, a pioneer, an advocate of partnerships and collaboration, and an excellent communicator, which makes him, I venture to suggest, a beast seldom spotted in the rarefied uplands of the medical kingdom. He is Professor Shube Banerjee. As Professor of Dementia and Associate Dean at Brighton and Sussex Medical School, he led research into the quality of life and care of those with dementia. We have to focus on what individuals can do, he says, not what they can't, and on our ability to adapt to them because they're not going to adapt to us. Kindness is the core, and hope. I sell hope. While at Brighton, Professor Banerjee launched a world-leading education programme in which healthcare students regularly visit and talk to families of people with dementia to gain a deeper understanding of the long-term impact of the care that they themselves as future doctors, nurses, occupational therapists, physios, will deliver. Our job, he says, is to create the next generation who are a bit less rubbish than we are. Seconded to the Department of Health in 2008, Shube Banerjee led the development of the country's first national dementia strategy. It was a huge step towards changing the way the condition is viewed by both government and public, and the professor was determined that it should be crafted and informed by those who really understand dementia, that is, the people living with and affected by it. Today, this approach is becoming more common. In 2008-2009, it was nigh on revolutionary. Last year, Professor Banerjee was appointed Executive Dean of Plymouth University's Cross-Disciplinary Health Faculty. Among his many responsibilities, he jointly heads up Radio Me, a groundbreaking project that uses artificial intelligence to tailor live radio to an individual's needs. Through clever, technological means well beyond my grasp, listeners with dementia will receive personalised reminders, information and music, all designed to enable them to live alone independently in their home for longer. A few years ago, the professor gave his inaugural lecture at Sussex and Brighton, named after that great Ian Dury song, Reasons to be Cheerful. It was an entertaining, compelling new wave voyage around the state of dementia post-1979, the year the Alzheimer's Society was founded. Partway through it, the professor showed a slide summarising our national dementia strategy. It was a horribly complicated slide because, as Shuby told his audience, dementia is complicated. 
It transcends the boundaries of health and social care, of physical and mental disorder, of what families should do, what the state should do, what industry should do. Dementia, he concluded, is the prime exemplar globally of the complexity of challenges facing health services of all sorts. I so agree, Professor Banerjee, which is why I'm delighted and honoured to welcome you to Well, I Know Now. Thank you very much for inviting me on. So can I start by taking you back, as you took your audience back in that brilliant Reasons to be Cheerful speech, but this time, well, right back as far as you want to go, really, but to ask you why you first became interested in medicine, mental health and ageing, and specifically dementia. I mean, go, go as far back as you like. I don't know if it started in your childhood. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, I was brought up in a, in a medical family. My father's a doctor, my mother was a nurse. Uh, my grandmother was a nursing auxiliary down in Cornwall. So I was brought up in a medical family. So there was medicine around all the time. And in terms of why I went into medicine, when I was at school, I was very keen on doing something that actually had some practical value, where there was the possibility that what I was doing was going to be, you know, useful to someone yes. and potentially useful to myself. And I suppose more than anything, I kind of drifted into it and ended up at medical school. But actually, one of the things that I was fairly clear about at that point was by going to medical school was that I was really interested in psychiatry. I was really interested in the way the mind worked. I was really interested in the stories that individuals had read those kind of seminal books that you read when you're in your teens. And I was interested in mental health, which I think was a bit of a surprise to the people at St. Thomas's when in my interview, they asked me what I wanted to be. And I started talking about being a psychiatrist. I don't think there'd been a psychiatrist that had trained at St. Thomas's for the past 20 years. Oh, really? So yeah, we didn't make a lot of psychiatrists in St. Thomas's. But yes, when I was doing my medical career, I was very interested in psychiatry. I was very interested in psychiatry all through my medical career, apart from the six weeks when we were doing psychiatry, which were just so appallingly tedious and very badly taught by individuals who had a very primitive idea of what patients should be allowed to do. Mm. So visiting Tootingbeck Mental Asylum, which is where I did the bulk of my work, didn't make me feel very positive about doing psychiatry. Mm. For a fleeting moment, I thought I might become an orthopaedic surgeon, but that <laughs> malady passed. And <laughs> Again, there was an inspiring father of one of my oldest friends who I was at school with from the age of 10. And he was a really enlightened and very positive psychiatrist who worked at Oxford. And he encouraged me. And uh, so I ended up training as a psychiatrist. And I suppose when I started in psychiatry, I was absolutely positive I was going to be a child psychiatrist mm. so that you could prevent disorders from happening. Mm. And it was when I went to work for another inspirational psychiatrist, but also an inspirational team that had been put together that worked in a truly multidisciplinary way. This is way back in 1988, I mm. think. This fantastic team that had been set up by a pioneering psychiatrist called Lane Murphy and run by another one called Alistair MacDonald, mm. run by a brilliant occupational therapist called Barbara. And I basically kind of came as somebody who was very concerned about the fact that I was going to be spending six months working with older people, having mm. kind of drunk deep of a lot of the prejudice that was inherent in mm. the way that medicine was mm. taught and delivered. Mm. And, you know, within a couple of weeks, I was 
just entranced and delighted by the stories that the individuals I was meeting were telling me about, mm. about their lives through the wars and before the wars mm. in the docks in southeast London. This is mm. all in Lewisham. Mm. Um, mm. And also by the amazing team that had been forged, which removed the hierarchy of doctors knowing everything what to do and actually acknowledged the fact that the only good dementia care is dementia care that is collaborative and multidisciplinary mm. and integrated between health and social care. Mm. They were doing some absolutely wonderful stuff at that time and also introduced to the possibility of doing research. So once mm. I kind of went, I never left and I never did get to do child psychiatry. Right. That's why I ended up working in old people's mental health. Mm. Mm. So interesting because, well, at least three of the people I've interviewed, it's really been that a part of why they have become interested in dementia is this wealth of stories that old people have. It's so contradictory that older people tend to become invisible or, you know, our society is so obsessed with youth when in fact, you know, they, they have all, so much to offer. Absolutely. All of the interest, all of the stories were there, all of the things. I think that the other thing that really caught me at that point, and it kind of, I suppose, goes back into the reason why I went into medicine in the first place, the things that really caught me and you know, um, you talk about things that you didn't know. I had no idea just how poorly served older people with depression, older people with mental health problems, and older people with dementia mm. were. I had mm, mm. no idea just how bad mm. services were, how unfocused and how incoherent mm. they generally were. So, mm. so every day we were presented with a whole set of issues that needed to be solved and a whole set of things that needed to be sorted. But, you know, paradoxically, it wasn't the fact that the services were so bad that inspired me. What inspired me was there was just so much hope there mm. because there was so much that could be done, could be done. much mm. of which mm. was mm. relatively simple and mm. easy mm. to do. Absolutely. Uh, multifactorial, yeah. obviously, there was... Mm things mm. to do in terms of supporting carers, supporting mm. those mm. individuals, some mm. things to do with medication, things mm. that were biological, things were psychological, mm. and things that were social. There was so much that could be done mm. to enhance and enable mm. a better quality of life for those individuals mm. that that was really exciting. So mm. it kind of appealed to my campaigning inner self, which mm. basically mm. wants to improve things for people, but also my kind of therapeutic inner self of actually there just being so much that one could do. Yes. Now, obviously, that's the same now. Things have moved on in terms of some of the quality of diagnosis and care that individuals get, but there's still so much that needs to be done. Mm. And so, you know, that thing that I identified in Lewisham in 1988 and this team that had been set up in order to be able to assess and deliver you know, better care to those individuals. That's still so were you enabling still, my what, career now. Yes, and were you a student then or were you practising by then or what was happening to no, you? No, that's when, point? so when I joined that team, I qualified as a doctor. I qualified yeah. as a doctor for St Thomas's in 1987 right. and then joined the training scheme at Guy's. And part of that was my third job, I think, on the rotation was to go and work in the old age psychiatry team down in Got it. Lewisham. Yes. Okay. And so that's when I was three, four years into my medical career. So interesting that there's the possibility, there's this wealth of opportunity. You saw it like that. Oh, yeah. I mean, we're presented with so many things in medicine that were kind of whereby the things that you would do were generating a, a few more percent of extra function in somebody mm. whose treatment was fairly well maximised. There was just so much that wasn't being done. Was there that an could attitude be done. that it was sort of beyond hope and it didn't quite matter so much when people were older? I think exactly that. I think there were ingrained and mm. 
deeply felt ideas that older people responded worse to mm. antidepressants than younger people, for example, mm. uh, and they don't. So that the treatment of depression in older people is just as successful as the treatment of depression in younger people. It's just that people weren't trying very hard with yes. older people. Yes. And that was the first set of research that I did was largely on depression in older people. And so there were those expectations. So they were both public expectations. So within families, not demanding very much and expecting mm, less from services, mm. but also within the services. And I, 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 again, that generation of people that I was working with at that point and that you know, still there, they were almost pathologically uncomplaining. Yes. So they would not ask for very much. And when you gave them almost nothing, they'd say thank you. Absolutely. Yes, it's like, well, certainly my parents were very like that. And also there was a tremendous almost reverence of doctors in the medical profession. And if somebody told you that's what you did, that's what you did and you didn't question it. Exactly. I mean, whether you did it or not was the thing that you decided. And obviously a, a lot of older people were being prescribed a lot of medicine that they didn't take. take. Mm -hmm. But you certainly didn't argue with what was being no, uh, Because suggested. I think when I was researching you, I was ashamed to say I didn't know this, but the rate of um, antipsychotic drugs has gone down massively now. But sometimes with various drugs, they will have completely different effects for somebody with dementia and somebody without dementia. So, for example, drugs you might take for depression won't work nearly as well for somebody with dementia. I mean, there's just something that goes on. Well, a lot of the research that I've carried out and some of the implementation work that I've been really engaged with in the last 15, 20 years has been about clarifying that mm -hmm. actually the world is different when one has dementia, that yes. you actually need to create mm. solutions that are shaped to deal with dementia. Yeah. So yeah. absolutely, as you say, we've done work looking at the treatment of depression yeah. in dementia. Now, I said earlier that older people with depression respond just as well to treatments, be they drug treatments or psychological and mm. psychotherapeutic treatments than do younger people. However, people with dementia mm. do not respond mm. to antidepressants in the same way. And it was kind of slightly silly to think that they might because their brain chemistry is clearly affected by mm. the neurodegeneration of dementia, no matter what its cause. Mm. And equally, when we were looking at the effect of antipsychotics, we were looking at harms of individuals when we were developing the national dementia strategy and it became increasingly clear that there was you know a problem not only in the united kingdom but across the world in terms of a reflexive use of antipsychotic medication which were designed for the treatment of psychosis now very very good at the treatment of psychosis but they were designed to be used for their side effect of sedation they were being used you know, very mm. largely mm. to deal with that. And we carried out a review and we estimated that, uh, you know, up to a quarter of individuals were being prescribed these medications, a quarter of individuals with dementia. Mm. And we set out to make it a priority for the NHS to deal with their own stuff and to drive down the rates of prescriptions of these medications, mm. which had harms that were specific to people with dementia. So not only did they not work, mm. but they had specific harms that were particular to dementia. And so, you know, through a concerted effort from NHS England and GP practices up and down the country and older people's mental health services, we've probably halved the rate of the use of those medications, mm. and apart which from is sort of a, a good and positive thing. It, may, it is a really one of the really good uh, results. Apart from obviously sort of sedating them, I and mean, there were no, weren't there, the chemical kosh, what were the other bad effects then? Because, I, you know, my mother was actually on them for a while because she died, you know, quite a while ago now. Yeah, the very sobering message that 
comes very clearly from the literature is that those individuals with dementia who are prescribed these drugs have a higher death rate than individuals with the same physical illnesses but without dementia. So there's an extra mortality of about 1% per three months or so of treatment that accrues through the use of these medications. And that may be entirely reasonable and it may be entirely acceptable because obviously behavioural problems of dementia can be extremely severe and complicated Mm. and can be absolutely Mm. critical to individuals Mm. staying at home. These drugs don't work at all in terms of station, it's just they don't work very well. So there is that extra mortality. But the thing that was particularly concerning was that those risks were not being discussed properly with families and the individuals where they're able to discuss them. And that the individuals prescribing weren't necessarily aware of those risks as well. Mm, mm. And so it is absolutely by changing people's willingness to reach for the prescription pad that we have enabled the rates of prescription of these drugs to half in the United Mm. Kingdom, when in other parts of the country they absolutely haven't. Sorry, other parts of the world. Of the world, yes. It's an attitudinal shift as much as anything else, isn't it? I think it's about changing the knowledge, attitudes Mm. and Mm. behaviour of Mm. NHS Mm. staff or of medical staff, largely because it's generally medical staff who are prescribing these medicines. Yes, of course. So sort of linked to that really is I would like to start with something topical, which I'd love your views on. And that's the tragedy at the moment during the coronavirus pandemic of families not being able to visit their loved ones in care homes. And it's bad enough for elderly people in care homes and nursing homes, but for people with dementia who really don't understand why their loved one is no longer coming to see them, when it might be the only sort of anchor in their emotional state that they've got. What do you think about what's happened? And I know there is now a pilot, I believe, so that a family will designate a, a member to, to be a, get key worker status and have PPE and um, regular testing. But what are your views on all this? I know, as you say, back to that word again, it's all very complicated. Absolutely. The care of people with dementia is complicated. The challenges presented by COVID-19 are complicated. However, it's not complicated to understand just how disproportionately people with dementia in care homes have been affected by Mm. COVID-19. It's there to see in terms of the mortality figures. Mm. It's there to see in terms of the harm that's done to individuals when people are not able to visit. And that's clear throughout the developed world. There are Mm. stories from France, stories from Canada, stories from the United Kingdom that are heartrending in terms of individuals who have essentially been surviving with a good quality of life because their family members have been able to come in regularly, sometimes just once a week, but often daily, in order to engage and enable social communication and Mm. eating and all sorts of things. Mm. And to have that taken away just without the ability to plan, without the ability to be able to mitigate the risks, and for that to be taken away in a week is immensely destabilising. It would have been clearly helpful if there had been ways that had been found to enable people safely to visit people Mm. in care homes. Mm. And we found ways of enabling hospitals Mm. to function safely. But I think that care homes, and we're largely talking about people with dementia in care homes here, Mm. Mm. care homes... 70 to 80%, isn't it? 
So, so about a third of people with dementia in the UK live in care homes. Mm, mm. And of the people who live in care homes, about 89% of those have dementia. 89% so it's now reckoned to be, is it? Yes, it's, it's a very high number. Very high, yeah. People that, mm. don't really go into care homes unless they have dementia now. Mm. Or if they do, it's for a relatively short period of time. Mm, mm. But I think the kind of to return to the point that I was making, I think that care homes have borne a disproportionate mm. amount of the harm so that the, the things that we focused on in terms of allowing general hospitals to work mm. were not generalized rapidly enough or and were not delivered quickly enough to enable carers to continue to visit and to act and interact with people in care homes mm. so there's more still to be learned and there are things mm. that are improving clearly and as you say there are some good and interesting pilots about how we can improve things but uh I think it's important to factor in the quality of life decrements that come mm. from the loss of the visits of families and the interactions that come from that. Mm. And, you know, people with dementia say to me, but I, I even have people say, I can't remember who you are, but I know I like you. It's just that sort of emotion of, you know, and so if you don't get visited and you don't have the touch, of course, and you don't have the emotional connection... That must be devastating for somebody with dementia. Yes, and I suppose it is important to remember that different people have reacted in different, different ways, ways. Mm -hmm. and that there are individuals who are really not visited very often in nursing homes, people without families, people mm. without friends, and those people were you know, not affected in the same way. Though, mm. of course, it wasn't just the visitors that weren't there. It was the fact that staff within the home were changing the way that they acted and interacted mm, with people yes. and by wearing masks and things. And those can be very frightening if you don't know what's going on. And there are other individuals who were less affected and ones that were more affected. But mm. it's absolutely impossible to work out which group that would have been beforehand. Mm. I think everybody's lives improved is improved by seeing family and friends if you have them and them coming around and acting and interacting with you, whether you have or do not have dementia. Mm. And I think, that, again, one of the things that I think is really important to remember, even if it sounds simplistic, is that the reason why things like social interaction matter is because that's what matters to people. And people with dementia are still people. Absolutely. So all the things that matter to people matter to people with dementia. Yes. So, you know, not being condescended to, uh, visited, as you've said, things like touch, Things like speech and interaction, social interaction, these are things that we all need. Yes. And people with dementia may need to have them modified yes. so that they can partake of them, but they have no less of that need than the rest of us, and yeah. sometimes rather more. Yes, very well put indeed. The other, just we could briefly touch on this because it is very topical. By the time this podcast is broadcast, it might be quite so topical, but today on the news, we were both saying we heard the announcement that swimming in ice cold water might help people with dementia. It's because of a, well, you'll know this far better than me, be, but the, the cold shock protein RBM3 was found in the blood of these regular swimmers at Parliament Hill. Can you just explain the theory behind it? It's to do with sort of um, being at a very cold temperature. It's a bit like hibernating animals, isn't it? And then you come out sort of slightly beyond me, but uh, and, and what you think about it as a... 
as a possibility. So I think that I, I like to see this in general terms rather than specific. I, I can't explain the specific chemistry of it, and there's still a lot of work to be done on those things. But I think what it is a really nice example of is, firstly, that there are a lot of different potential biological avenues that we might go down in order to look at how we might you know, repair and protect our brains. And that's what we're looking to do if we want to modify the disease process in Alzheimer's disease and in other dementias. But secondly, I think what it shows is just what hunger there is out there for an answer, what hunger there is for the magic bullet that will make it all go away, what hunger there is to be, now what a willingness rather, there is to be involved in research that might help that so that the, yes. you know, the group at the ponds at Hampstead yes. were you know, they were the ones who approached the researcher yes, in order that, yes. to get that done. Yes, that was a good I, And I think that before COVID, if you looked at the tabloid front pages, particularly the Mail and Express, you'd find once every month or, or a couple of times a month, a front page that was dedicated to dementia, that was coffee causes dementia or coffee cures dementia, <laughs> yes. curry cures dementia, yes. that uh, it's all to do with your relationships, alcohol helps yes. or hinders, whatever. Yes. Yes. And the yes. reason why those things are on the front page is that people, and this is, I think, a function of the success of things like the National Dementia Strategy, people are now more concerned about dementia. People have changed their understanding of dementia so that it's not now seen as a natural and normal part of ageing. It's seen as an illness or a disease. You know, there is a hope that there will be specific yes. Yes. and efficacious treatments. Yes. And there's a, a hunger out yes. there for there to be yes. such treatments available for people to venture. And again, in the last you know, 15 years, there's been such an increase in the amount of research that's going out, like the cold shot protein stuff that uh, you were talking about there, but blue sky stuff, looking at all yes. sorts of ways of trying to improve things for people with dementia. We want to feed that. And I suppose my message in that is that it's really important not to lose sight of what we can actually do to help people now. Yes. You know, there are all sorts of ways of improving the quality of life of individuals with dementia that don't involve a magic bullet that makes the dementia go away. We'd all yes. like to have that. But in the absence of that, people can live well or live poorly with dementia. And things that we do, things that we as families, we as society as a whole, we as healthcare professionals and we as politicians, things that we do, choices that we make, make it more or less likely that this large but vulnerable group of individuals will live well or live poorly with this long-term and difficult illness. Yeah. So for me, again, it comes down to hope. There is so much that we could be doing that we're not doing. And that for me is the challenge that I see when I hear about the interesting cold shot protein. I think about all of the things that one might be doing in order to be able to promote people with dementia living well. Yes. So that takes us nicely, actually, on to, which I wanted to talk to you about, among other things, the Time for Dementia programme that was introduced at Brighton and Sussex when you were there in 2014. So tell us about that, because you're a much better place than I am to describe it. So it fundamentally comes out from the analysis, there are things that are not being done that could be being done to help people with dementia. And it also comes from the analysis that actually, the things that healthcare systems are not so good at dealing with, and practitioners are not so good at dealing with are long-term conditions and chronic conditions like dementia. You know, we've got brilliant at treating people with cancer 
and uh, people with heart attacks mm. and strokes. You know, mm. services now are so much better mm. than they were. 20, 30 years ago, you know, there's been remarkable improvements mm. in those. It's been a lot of investment. There's been some fantastic discoveries. But essentially, we are so good at doing that now. And much of our education continues to talk about, you know, how you do that. Now, those are the things that are now optimised, whereby people know how to do it. And they know how to do it well. The Macmillan nurses, for example, in cancer, mm. do the whole of palliative care extraordinarily mm. well. Mm. So what we wanted to do in Time for Dementia was to create a programme that was complementary to the major illness and acute hospital-focused training that was in many medical schools and nursing schools and occupational therapy schools. We wanted to do something that was complementary to that, that enabled people to get a true understanding of what it was to live, to be old and frail, what it was to have chronic long-term illnesses. And in order to do that, we developed Time for Dementia. And Time for Dementia is a simple idea that's really difficult to do. And we managed to formulate that simple idea and to do it and evaluate it. So the simple idea is that people who are students, healthcare students of any sort, and we managed to introduce this really across all healthcare schools in Kent, Surrey and Sussex, including Brighton and Sussex Medical School, started it off at Brighton and Sussex Medical School with uh, medical students and at the University of Surrey with nursing students and with paramedics. Those are the first that we did right at the beginning. And so what happens is that they go into the home of a person with dementia in pairs. So a pair of students visit a person with dementia and their family carer, and they visit them every term, so three or four times a year for two years. And they basically are taught by the family with dementia what it is to have dementia and what it is that health systems have done to help and to hinder them. And what it does is it makes those students see the world through the eyes of the person with dementia. Mm. They see the world through the community rather than through the hospital. Mm. They see the world in a way that is different and it changes people's attitudes, mm. it changes people's understanding, mm. and it starts to develop in those individuals an indignancy, being indignant about how poorly people are mm. sometimes they're treated. On the other, they're on the other side of the death sort of thing aren't they they're walking in the people with dementia mm. shoes and the mm. families and they're rooting for them and it enables people to develop confidence and competence in communicating people realize that actually most of the time people with dementia are living perfectly good and happy lives they have this long-term condition and it's really complicated but they learn about what you know the everyday miracle of what carers do to support people with dementia yes. and so they don't underestimate the importance and the value of carers. They remember to talk to carers. Mm. And again, that improves things. Mm. And what we're particularly proud about with Time for Dementia is that it is interdisciplinary. It isn't just for doctors. It's for nurses, occupational therapists, others. We're just about to start some really interesting stuff of medical students visiting with mental health nursing students here down in Plymouth at the University of Plymouth. And I'm mm -hmm. really looking forward to how that goes. But it's absolutely for team working. It's absolutely for understanding the role of the patient. It's putting the patients in charge of our students' education, which is absolutely important yeah. and vital. Yeah. And it, as I said, it changes people's minds. There's mm -hmm. uh, one of my colleagues from the University of Surrey, has been working on this and she writes that it basically gives the students an entirely different view of where they are and where their patients are and enables them it teaches what we can't teach yes you know so it, it's able to do things and it's a two-year program mm. that runs we've run it now with getting on for 
I think a thousand, thousand five hundred students, maybe more than that. And no, actually, no, it's a thousand five hundred families, and about three thousand students have been through the、mm. program. We started it in Surrey and in Brighton and Sussex Medical School, and we've expanded that throughout Kent and Surrey and Sussex, where. Just about to start. If it hadn't been for COVID, we would have、mm. been starting the program down here in the University of Plymouth at the and the University of Exeter as well.、Right. Um, and we're looking. Well,、uh, you know, we've got some really interesting data from the evaluation that we've carried I'm out. I'm going to ask you about evaluation. I, yeah. Yeah. No, we've got some really lovely data which show that people's attitudes and understandings have changed, and very few things have been shown to increase person-centeredness in medical students, but our intervention appears to do so. And、uh, we have some really interesting qualitative data that go kind of rather more deeply into、mm. the sorts of changes that are happening in the nursing and medical students that we have, and that was just published、uh, a month or so ago in Age and Aging. So we're starting to get our data out there, and what we're hoping is that when this particular war is over with COVID, then、yeah. we'll be able to restart. And to, you know, help it to happen all over the country. And I think then the doctors of the future, the nurses of the future, the occupational therapists of the future would be much better placed not to make some of the mistakes that are made in terms of sacrificing older people and people with dementia in care homes to keep general hospitals working. Mm, mm, fascinating. And this idea of sort of collaborating runs through a lot of your work, doesn't it? And multidisciplinary and cross faculties and. I know that because you warned me beforehand that obviously this is a real shame that things with your the other project I mentioned in the introduction, the Radio Me project, which again is a partnership between IT and some very old familiar types of communication such as the radio, has been paused because of COVID. But I think it's worth just talking about because it's still very interesting and no doubt will push ahead once, as you say, we we get past this war that's on our hands. Absolutely, and you know the good thing about our Radio Me program is that while it's paused, there are bits of it that are still continuing in terms of generating the extraordinarily complicated and difficult to understand kind of algorithms that would <laughs> enable a radio to play music that you like rather than that DJ likes, and that would be able to connect to how you're feeling at the time or whether you're agitated or not. So, really fascinating, I think, to be able to tailor the radio feed. And of course, for many people, radio is. Your constant friend、Absolutely. that you listen to all through the day. Keep it on all day. Mm. Mm. Yeah, and it's a, an entirely familiar technology that isn't alien to older people themselves.、Exactly. And of course, things that one learns on the radio, one might be able to modify to work on television and other media as well as as yes, the, those kind of cohorts of individuals get older. Get older.、Mm-hmm. So Radio Me is all about. It's led by a fantastic experimental music technician. Knows all about computer music. Is that Eduardo?、Um, Eduardo Miranda, yes, from the University of Plymouth, and he's absolutely wonderful. But he's also working with some extremely talented people up in Glasgow in terms of computer science, and also the clinical expertise of individuals at Anglia Ruskin University for their music therapy research unit, which is really strong. And ourselves down here. It's a project that I helped with before I came down to Plymouth. Yes. So what we're hoping is that we'll be able to generate something whereby we can tailor through music responses and reminders、yes. uh, to individuals to help them to be able to, as I think you said at the beginning, to enable people to live longer in their own homes. You know, with this care. Yes, and there's also a, the bio bracelet, which would, again, in ways that are completely beyond me, be able to measure heart rate and、uh, those sort of things that can then, if somebody with dementia or presumably without dementia, suddenly becomes agitated for some reason, 
soothing music, particularly tailored, you know, music that, that you know that individual will respond to, will be played. And, and the, and absolutely. So everybody is wearing wearable things now. Aren't yes, they? absolutely. So, so the uh, the technology is moving on a pace. Yes. And we're really interested in the possibility of things that are extraordinarily simple, yes. whereby individuals don't have to go onto the third menu on a list of click things in order to be able to, mm. to, to mm. activate things, mm. but things that will automatically and in a kind of reliable way enable the environment to be tailored to an individual to help them. So there's a lot of experimental elements to Radio Me, and those are just the sort of things that are being carried out now in Plymouth and in Glasgow, and also in terms of how one generates lists of music and playlists that are specific and efficacious for individuals in terms of managing anxiety and how to avoid obviously music that promotes anxiety as well of course so no it's a it's a lovely project and uh, there are a whole set of other enterprises that are out there in that space of e-health and technology and ours is just one of the many ways that people are trying to help people with dementia using technology and i think that the more you make it so that it's technology that is responding and serving the person with dementia rather than us having to Mm. fiddle on the screens the, the better and uh, I, I'd love to sort of revisit and come back to you when it is off the pause button and you can do. push on with it because music and dementia, the power of music to enhance the lives of people with dementia is something very close to my heart. So I, I'd love to do that, Shubi. That would be great. I absolutely agree. And again, the more you start realising that our quality of life is determined by all manner of things that we can do things about, like music and social interaction and having that focus on what people can do rather than what people can't do which I think you mentioned in the introduction for me that's Mm. tremendously important so things that you like before you're likely to continue liking and things that you didn't like before then you're not likely to continue liking or learn to like yes quite quite and that's where personalization is so important well, thank you, Shubi. That was absolutely fascinating. And um, good luck with everything you're doing, um, particularly the Radio Me. And thank you for coming on the podcast. My pleasure. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Shubi Banerjee, the Professor of Hope. If only all medics and academics were as passionate, fluent and empathetic... I loved his enthusiasm, his can-do attitude, his instinctive desire to put those with dementia and their families at the heart of their care. And then there's his dynamism and leadership, which produce meaningful outcomes and projects such as Time for Dementia and Radio Me. His words on the impact of COVID on people with dementia living in care homes were powerful, informed and thoughtful. Dementia and the coronavirus situation might make things complicated, but uncomplicated and obvious is the fact that loved ones being denied access to relatives in care homes has produced heartrending human stories. Those with dementia have, as Professor Banerjee said, borne a disproportionate amount of the harm. But I came away from our interview full of hope and with far more understanding about dementia care in all its variety. And I hope you did too. And finally, If you've enjoyed listening today, I would be very, very grateful if you would rate, review and subscribe to the podcast on whichever platform or channel you're listening to it on, as this will help spread the word about the podcast. And then together, perhaps we can further diminish the stigma, increase the knowledge and quash the myths surrounding dementia.